Hello, and welcome to the Changemakers LA podcast presented by LA List. The Changemakers podcast is a tribute to the people and the policies that work to make LA neighborhoods great places to live, work, and play. My name is Tanua Thrash Intuk, and I'm the Executive Director of the Local Initiative Support Corporation Los Angeles office. Today, we're speaking with some very special guests about the future of housing during an unprecedented time. Today, we have with us the Director of Southern California for the California Housing Partnership, Paul Beesmeyer. Paul oversees all of the partnership Southern California Housing Finance Consultants. He also assists the nonprofit housing community and public agencies with affordable housing finance, real estate development, preservation of at-risk housing, and general housing policy. I'm also thrilled to present Bill Wong. Bill is also an adjunct faculty with our HDTI, or Housing, Direct housing Development Training Institute, and the Director of Housing and Career Services Department for the City of Pasadena. He is a champion of housing and has been inducted into the California Housing Hall of Fame. Thank you for being here with us, Bill. We're also joined by the incredible Rebecca Louie of Wakeland HDC. Rebecca has more than 20 years of experience in the affordable housing industry. As the vice president and COO, she brings an in-depth knowledge of all aspects of planning, building and operating affordable communities. And finally, we're excited to be joined by Audrey Peterson. She's a USC School of Public Policy alumni and senior projects manager at Clifford's Beards Housing. She's a developer of permanent supportive housing and is dedicated to ending homelessness in Los Angeles. Audrey is also an alumni of LISC's HDTI program. Thank you all for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be surrounded by so many champions of California housing and so many of you who've worked with LA LISC over the years. So let's get started with our first question. So Bill, for a broader look or picture at the current situation, what do you feel the coronavirus has taught the field about the relationship between housing, health, and safety? Uh, well, thank you for having me here, Tanua. And um, I think what we've learned is that housing, health, and safety are very interconnected in ways that we didn't realize. Um, it is, it's exposed a number of vulnerabilities, some of which we had an idea that they were there, but now we see them much more clearly. And it's exposed some brand new vulnerabilities that uh, I think in general, we were, we were not aware that uh, we even had. So for instance, you know, the local LA County emergency order is called safer at home, right? So where does that leave people who don't have a home, right? How are they supposed to be safer? And so you saw this mad scramble of, setting up a, a hotel room, moving people into hotel rooms, um, decompressing uh, shelters, et cetera, uh, 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 setting up quarantine rooms, isolation rooms. I mean, a, a whole mad scramble for that to protect that population. Um, the uh, real, one of the real difficulties there is this matter of decompressing uh, emergency shelters. I mean, that meant during the, during the emergency order, uh, the shelters in my city that I know they were not accepting. Not only were they not accepting any new intakes, but they were moving out two thirds of their existing population. And so what we have right now is about a third of the emergency housing capacity that we had before the pandemic. And, and we all know that we needed more. We didn't have enough emergency housing. Now we're now we're down to about a third of that. Um, 
we saw you know the the skilled nursing facilities um, were in were having a hard time before the pandemic, and afterwards now they're just in crisis mode with a really horrific uh, spread rates and death rates uh, because of COVID in their facilities. And then low income renters, right? There's a, a number of uh, rent eviction moratoriums that were set up uh, that give folks um, time to not pay rent and then time to pay back rent later. But we know lots of people are not going to be able to uh, pay that back rent. So there's an issue there. And then lastly, I would just say, you know, we, we have uh, we've been getting a lot of one time funding sources at, for instance, the state level because of budget surpluses. Well, those budget surpluses aren't going to be there. And so we're going to be looking at uh, more constricted resources in the future. Yeah, I mean, thanks for sharing that, Bill. The The connection is very clear. We can't have healthy and safe communities if we don't have housing. And the resources for an industry that was already constrained uh, will be that much more intense. Rebecca, how do you see the coronavirus, you know, after having sheltered in place and the safer at home and what some would call a lockdown, how do you see that affecting the already rising and increased demand for affordable housing? Are we seeing those uh, aspects in terms of the side effects uh, right now? Yes, yeah, I think we're already starting to see demand. I think that uh, even with the you know, eviction moratoriums that are taking place statewide and in most of the cities, you know, we're having more residents that are just, you know, leaving their apartment. I think they're nervous that they won't be able to pay rent. I think we're all really looking ahead to what's going to happen when the unemployment benefits, you know, are not as robust now or when they run out or and when these moratoriums run out. I think we all see a real pending crisis coming that's going to result in more people losing their homes, more people in need of affordable housing. Um, and really also probably supportive housing, because I think we're going to see a lot more people entering homelessness because they, you know, kind of already lost their housing that was already pretty much at the bottom of the housing place rungs, I guess you'd say. So, yeah, I think it's going to really, really see a need, increased need and demand. So, I mean, that is a sobering sort of perspective on what's happening in the market right now. People were already housing insecure. Um, people have a hard, have, you know, because of the, the shelter in place, people are not able to work and the public resources that may have been able to help people over the last few months will content, you know, really start to, to, to dry up and go away. Um, so that means we've got to keep pace with the affordable housing development that we're trying to do and stay on track. Audrey, um, you know, Clifford Beers has uh, remarkably been able to keep housing development on track. Um, how have your projects had to adapt to this crisis and what's happening right now? And do you have any insights that you can share with other developers as we try and continue to operate and move forward, uh, given that there are new health and safety concerns? Um, and Audrey, you know, you, you were telling me you've got a new title as well. Yes, yeah, recently. Um, it's been about three months now, I think. So um, in March, I moved into the housing director role. From Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. So so <laughs> um, that means that we're expecting you to keep up with this housing development. How's that going? Let's get some more units out there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, when we look at our projects in, in development right now, the biggest thing is how we communicate with our teams, you know, right with our general contractor as well as from our general contractors to all the subcontractors. 
the jurisdictions have been very clear in making um, um, policy for us to follow, right? Socially distanced crews, additional sanitizing stations, um, signage at all of the, the entrances, the job sites, but it's also just uh, on the human level, you wanna be in contact with your crews, um, you know, weekly, if not daily, right? Um, to make sure that uh, subcontractors are still coming onto the job, they have, you know, enough labor to, to get to your job as well as other jobs. Um, you know, at least one of our jobs has instituted uh, temperature readings on site um, before people come on site. All of that's very important to keeping um, crews healthy as well as the, the construction going. I think that's the biggest thing is sort of um, taking it at a human level, right? We all have to remember that this is more than just um, our job to build, to build housing, but also the humans that work on our job, the people that work on our job, they're also part of families. And so um, making sure that you're having communication with them on how they're feeling each day, uh, taking their temperature, checking in with subcontractors on crew availability and all that uh, helps keep, keep everything on schedule for us. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's a lot of extra. It already takes time in order for affordable housing development or really any construction to take place. And now we've got to stop to make sure that everybody has their PPE, that they're following safety measures, that there's hand sanitizer on site, and that you're taking the time to actually check people's temperature. Um, this is this is a lot. This is additional time and energy um, that is needed in order to be able to keep moving forward with a project. So, Paul, um, let's get you in on the conversation. Um, so, uh, Rebecca, you know, kind of talked about it, but, you know, there's a lot of folks who have been able to make April payments. They've been able to make May payments. Um, but as this thing continues to go on, that's going to might be harder and harder for people to continue to make payments because maybe savings have started to dwindle and any public resources, stimulus checks. All of those things um, start to, you know, to sort of getting eaten up with everyday life. So as residents face unemployment and uncertainty um, and are having a hard time paying rent, uh, what have you seen in terms of some of the pressures on affordable housing right now? And as a mentor to developers, what insights can you provide to help folks cope uh, with their portfolios and how to handle this? Sure. Um, thank you, Tanua. Uh, I would say that right now, being in <clears throat> in mid June with a couple months of rent receipts uh, behind us, we're in a we're in an anticipation phase. Uh, not necessarily uh, we're not we're not in the midst of crisis, at least with respect to rent receipts, but we're anticipating it because, as you said, uh, people are receiving um, people have been receiving their enhanced unemployment checks uh, and so on. <clears throat> Some low income tenants uh, are probably also beneficiaries of PPE loans to employers uh, that, that's keeping them employed for now. Um, but those things will run out. Congress doesn't seem to have an appetite to do more. Um, and so we are anticipating that uh, although rent receipts have been, have had minor hiccups, but have been fairly consistent for April and May, uh, that, that we're gonna start to see impacts at the, at the property level. So then that begs the big question, well, what do we do? Um, the affordable housing uh, community writ large is not a community that is uh, generally interested in seeing people on the streets. It's the whole it's the whole reason for being of the affordable housing industry. Um, <clears throat> so I think, you know, the first thing is that affordable housing owners are going to try very hard to figure out ways to keep tenants in place. And 
there are a couple of um, there are a few things at the property level that make that a um, that, <clears throat> that perhaps make that an easier thing to do than a uh, you know say a market rate property that's stretched pretty thin. Uh, for one thing, we have um, all all properties uh, are set up with with in some cases fairly healthy reserves. So that's the first place I think that owners will be looking after they after they look to tighten up operations. Um, but the other thing that this highlights to me, and and this is not something that um, this is something that we touch on a, a bit in the HDTI, but it really highlights the importance of um, of systematic uh, High, you know, high level um, and and consistent asset management um, because it's I, you know I, I look around at the at the developer partners that we work with and I'm just thankful that they have great asset management systems in place um, because if you don't and if you're not watching the properties closely you could quickly find yourself in real trouble and not realize you were getting into trouble. So to me, the the part of what the coronavirus crisis is highlighting is the importance of every little point on the affordable housing spectrum, including that point on the spectrum that deals with the properties. Once they're done, they're built, you've, you've fought city council and the planning commission, you've won, you've gotten your money together. You've, you've partnered with them, hopefully. Right, we did it. <laughs> now we're three years down the road and, and, we've got, and we've got some major operating problems coming. So that really highlights the importance and the, the, critical, um, the critical role that asset management plays in keeping affordable housing sustainable for the long term. I think that's really, really critical. And I'm glad you mentioned that. I know at LISC over the past year, we just so happened to really be focusing in on trying to make sure that um, all of our groups and all the groups in the market have strong asset management skills and expertise and training, uh, not knowing that something like this would come. Um, but as but you as someone who you know has been in this field a long time and advises organizations to hear that that's a critical component of the full development spectrum and process um, is something that we definitely you know need to heed as an industry and hold on to as far as how we uh, manage during uncertain times. So Rebecca, um, you know, during the current pandemic, uh, Wakeland has been working to adapt uh, services for residents. Uh, you know, this is, Paul talked about it, Bill talked about it. Our goal is not to have anybody on the street as affordable housing developers and partners and communities. Um, and people now need even more than housing. They need additional services. Um, what have you guys been doing to adapt so that you can help your residents better shelter in place? I would say our first push was really on basic needs, getting people's basic needs met. So, you know, we had a lot of residents, we have a lot of seniors, we have a lot of formerly homeless seniors, we have people who've been homeless and with very limited resources. Um, so, you know, they weren't able to go stock up for this type of thing. They might live in areas that are in, you know, food deserts. And so, you know, in a way we never have been before, we immediately started partnering with food banks and food distribution and calling hotels and getting things. and. You know, fortunately, I have a really dedicated staff because that was a challenge. Who's going to deliver it? Who's going to get it to them? Who's going to kind of be out there? So it was just this really worst case scenario of just this extraordinary day to day need for food and toilet paper and supplies for the residents and then getting it out there. So I think that was really adapting, getting the systems put in place to be able to do that. And now we've got that going very routinely where we're at the properties with the biggest needs, being able to get those basic need 
deliveries, uh, we then really had to focus on benefits connection. We knew it was in our best interest to try to help everyone get set up for unemployment and the stimulus checks and any other benefits they're eligible for, but with the challenge of not being able to meet with them in our community center or let them use our computer labs, which had to be closed. Um, and knowing that for so many people, this is a really overwhelming process. So uh, we started doing, um, we got phone numbers for every resident at every one of our properties, which we did not originally have. So we were able to get those together. Our services staff who were working from home at this point just started calling everyone. What do you need? What do you need help with? When they could, they would walk them through the process on the phone. They started FaceTiming people, which was something we hadn't done before. So doing FaceTime and Zooms with the residents that did have the technology to do so and the ability. And then for those residents that don't have computers or phones or any way to do that, we started having one-on-one -on -one appointments with them where we would have all the PPP in place, uh, PPE, how does it go wrong? Uh, where we could have one-on-one -on -one meetings with them in our community rooms and get them signed up for what they needed, which I think has been uh, an enormous assist uh, assistance. We got a lot of people signed up that would not have otherwise been able to. And in doing so, kind of have seen the benefit of calling people and using Zoom. It can sometimes be challenging to get adults to participate in services. And we found that when you can call them and Zoom them and let them be in their home, we've actually, it's something we're gonna incorporate into our programs going forward. Uh, and then I would say going forward, what we're really focusing on is the digital divide, which is you know always been a nagging problem, but now is looking like the solution to so many things is figuring out you know, we're going to be in this virtual world. Your kids, what's school going to look like for our kids in the fall? How are they going to participate if they're in some combo of needing that? So we're assessing all of our properties, the old ones that maybe don't have Wi-Fi. Can we at least do some kind of radius of stronger Wi-Fi around our community rooms so people could sit outside of it? Can we retrofit old buildings? Um to be able to get more people Wi-Fi and we're partnering with organizations to try to get more, you know, laptops and tablets and things like that for our residents. Wow, you know, it's full service nowadays, right? There are mm -hmm. a lot of the Enjoy development it. that many of us have done and that you all do really starts with getting people housing. But given this crisis, we found that in order to keep them housed, uh, we have to be able to uh, now sort of pivot and provide some of those basic services so that they get the food access, they get information, like you said, and uh, I'm loving hearing this concept of can we deliver services now to residents based on this virtual reality you know they were people weren't maybe showing up to certain things before but now is there a way to engage them if they can stay right in their homes as well um and and i'll have to say i'll just put a plug for the fact that list just put out list los angeles just put out a housing toolkit and one of the things that we're really hoping is that some of the uh, reserves and some of the residual receipts funds that might normally go out to um, a city or a county can be used to provide those kind of services that are needed to help people more comfortably shelter in place and be able to sustain their housing. So, Bill, that brings us to what can cities do? Um, you know, we we see that there's an increased demand for housing and not only for housing, but all the services that go along with that. You've worked as the housing director for LA County. Now you're the director there in the city of Pasadena. What what role can government play in supporting affordable housing development right now? And what action are you already taking to support affordable housing? Uh, thank you, Chinua. Yeah, I would say, you know, the public sector 
is, is doing a lot uh, on the legislative level. Uh, there have been an unprecedented number of housing bills um, passed, uh, adopted, and proposed, uh, including some some that are actually useful. Um, they cover things like I, I know I knew Paul would appreciate that. Uh, some that are they include uh, you know streamlining super density bonuses, uh, by right uh, development, uh, uh, accessory dwelling units, source of income discrimination. Sort of a wide gamut of legislation ha has been uh, adopted. Um, and uh, also uh, more and more publicly owned property has been made available for housing development and uh, shelter development um, more than I think probably ever before. And so that, that's possible, uh, that's positive, um, but we still need a lot more. You know, at its core, the housing crisis is, is due to the fact that housing costs are increasing at a much faster rate than incomes. And so the, the thing that really solves that, addresses that issue is deed restricted long-term deed restricted housing that ties uh, housing cost increases to income increases so they don't they don't uh, the, the housing costs don't outpace incomes but they're they're tied together and they continue to stay tied together for the long term you know that that's something that you know rental assistance and even uh, rent control can't do uh, as well um, really deed restricted uh, affordable housing is what we really need and I think we need tremendous amounts of it and so from a uh, public sector perspective, uh, there's three things that we can do. We could subsidize it, which we're doing, but we need a lot more uh, permanent ongoing funding sources. Um, we also can uh, incentivize it, and you've seen this with uh, uh, super density bonuses, property tax waivers, uh, fee waivers, things like that. Um, but I think it needs to be expanded so that it's not just attractive to the traditional affordable housing developer, but that they're meaningful to uh, private developers so that they also will join in uh, and produce more uh, uh, affordable housing, like the state state density bonus is an example of uh, an incentive. But I think it can be, you know, things like that could be much stronger to uh, incentivize developers to want to produce voluntarily uh, affordable housing. And then lastly, we can require it and we can require it with things like inclusionary zoning. That says if you're going to develop, you have to set aside a certain number of units as affordable. And so between those, those three things, I think um, uh, those tools need to be strengthened. So more subsidy, more incentives and more requirements to, to do it. And between the three, I think, uh, you know, we can move the needle. You know, I'd say in, in Pasadena, Pasadena is not a very big place. We're 23 square miles. We currently have 755 deed restricted units in our pipeline right now wow. and um, and that's in a, in a in a very difficult en environment including two brand new PSH projects um, are, are in there as well so it can be done it is being done not just in Pasadena but in but in other places um, as well and then I think we also need to look at you know finding ways where we can take advantage of acquiring existing uh, sort of the, the naturally occurring affordable housing the NOAA properties um, our traditional affordable housing funding sources usually look at substantial rehab or uh, new construction, but there's a lot of existing apartment buildings that could be acquired and deed restricted. And over time, as the tenants move out, uh, the, those units can uh, can be replaced. Those tenants can be uh, occupied. Those units can be occupied with um, affordable tenants. But our funding sources don't lend themselves to that. Um, also, I think we need to look at shared housing. We're doing a pilot program uh, using a single family house for shared housing for three uh, for rapid rehousing um, clients. 
uh, who can't afford their own unit, but they can afford their own room. And so this would be permanent shared housing. Um, and then we're also looking at, uh, I think, ADUs. There, there's been an accessory dwelling unit building boom. But how many of those really are going to be used for affordable housing rather than, you know, short-term rental or home office or something like that, right? We, we really want to get some affordable housing, real affordable housing out of that. And so um, that's an area where there's, there's room to work. Um, we're, doing a, we're doing a pilot program uh, like that. Uh, we're getting ready to launch a pilot program for ADUs uh, in Pasadena to get some real affordable housing. But um, yeah, we need massive amounts of deed-restricted housing. Well, Bill, thanks for leading the way in Pasadena. I mean, that is a model for many other cities who might say it's not possible. Um, you have pulled together various different streams of resources and various different strategies to get people housed from new uh, buildings to accessory dwelling units and everything sort of in between where there's naturally occurring affordable housing and you're picking up those opportunities. So that's great. So I'm going to uh, ask each of my panelists, let's let's we're going to close out for today. Um, so, you know, during this pandemic, housing seems to have come to the forefront with calls for safer at home, but for who and who has gotten housed. But we've also seen a record uh, rapid pace response by the state of California and local municipalities and moving homeless people, for example, to hotels to get everyone in. What does that say to you about the importance of the affordable housing movement moving forward? Um, I'll come to Audrey on this one first. Sure, I, I think it's essential. I mean, Bill mentioned the increased housing cost without incomes increasing, and I think that points to the larger, you know, affordability crisis um, in Los Angeles, and you know, I almost want to say nationwide um, in urban in urban areas, particularly because we always. We talk about the homelessness crisis, but that's really just the tip of the iceberg, right? There's a much larger um, discussion about affordabilities and housing affordability and how we secure housing um, for families and for households and what that means to communities, right? If, if someone's worried about losing housing, they're much less likely to get involved in that community. And so when we talk about, um, um, you know, uh, housing, uh, people, we're talking about investing in communities as well. And I think that that's really the larger picture that um, makes affordable housing and sort of housing uh, security that essential need. Great. Paul, what do you think this is saying about the future of affordable housing? Uh, thanks, Tanua. Uh you know, I, I've been doing this work since uh, Bill first hired me in 1990 something something as a list AmeriCorps intern. And um, there's been a crisis the whole time. <clears throat> People have used the word housing crisis for all the 25-ish years that I've, that I've been involved in affordable housing. Um, but what I've said the last couple of years is that it's not just the housers who are using that word anymore. It's made its way into media mainstream. It's made its way into larger policy circles, um, which, is, uh, which is gratifying. But that also means that it's gotten bad enough that it's moved beyond the circle of the true and, and it, something has to be really bad to start to change hearts and minds um, uh, for, for those outside, uh, outside of a given sector, in this case, affordable housing. Um, and I think, I think what the, I, we're, I, I think over the next, over the coming months, next two or three months, I think we're, we're going to start to see the 
the importance, unfortunately, played out in real time of housing stability. Um, because I think a lot of people, despite best efforts, despite best efforts of local government, are going to experience real housing instability. And um, <clears throat> and so the, so we're going to see this. It's not just going to be the mentally Ill, Ill homeless people in Skid Row, for example, who most people going about their daily lives don't see, unfortunately. Um, but it's going to be people who had employment and were fine, uh, but didn't have uh, didn't have a large uh, cushion to fall back on and now will suddenly not be. And so I think um, I think the next few months going to just continue to highlight the the importance of the work that we're doing, the importance of the work that has been happening at the state in the legislature, and um, and I'm I'm hopeful that continue to see um, despite the budget picture for the state, I'm I'm hopeful that we'll continue to see uh, meaningful legislation and meaningful actions, not just little improvements around the margins to make affordable housing possible. Right. Yeah. It's it's not just a, a crisis that only the believers. I love that uh, those who've been doing affordable housing development for the last several decades, but you know, a lot of the public is now aware, and the media has picked up on it. Rebecca, what do you think it means? Um, you know, I think it's really played up the you know that we all continuously need to be asking the question: What do we do to keep people housed? You know, when Wakeland first got into supportive housing and started, you that really teaches you to ask that question. Where you look at the tenant and say, okay, how are we all working together to keep this person in their home? Are we the service provider? You know, is everyone coming together to keep this person, help them overcome their challenges that they may be facing and working together? And we then kind of took that philosophy and said, well, why aren't we asking this at our family projects? Why aren't we asking this everywhere? We should always be doing every single thing we can do to keep someone in their home because once they lose that housing, once they are out of that stability, it is going to be so hard to get them back in. And I, I think that's really what we're going to see. And so I hope we're able to ask that same question of people that are not in affordable housing and that we can, you know, look at it in the affordable housing going forward. I've been obviously, you know, really thing that's jumped out is how stable our vouchered properties are. Those are the properties I don't have to worry about because I'm going to get that payment regardless of what the tenant situation is. And, you know, if my whole portfolio is vouchered, we'd be fine and our tenants would be fine. It's a fantastic way to do affordable housing. Um, so that's something that's really stood out to me. Mm -hmm. Yep, Bill, is there anything you wanna say in closing? Um, I would just say, I think we, you know, we yet again need to adjust and fine tune and uh, laser focus our, our efforts and our resources. Um, I know uh, in Pasadena, we're looking at, you know, beefing up uh, homeless prevention and rapid rehousing um uh we we and la county la uh, both saw uh 20 percent increases in older homeless uh individuals in one year 20 percent increase uh, we have to get you know and these are folks who are most uh vulnerable to dying from COVID, and so we have to get the seniors off the streets we have to get figure out how to get them housed um so it's you know uh, focusing, refocusing, shuffling around resources. There's never enough resources uh, for everybody, uh, but we just need to keep uh, keep working and, and doing the best we can. And hopefully better legislation will come down the line, more resources will come down the line. Um, but the housers, the true believers have always been really creative and um, out of necessity. And, and here we go again. Great, well, thank you all. I mean, essentially this was a very broad conversation about the intersection between housing 
health and safety. Uh, we're looking at the impacts of what the shelter in place means and how we've been able to move a lot of people into motels, but for a number of low income residents that are in their housing right now and the housing that many of us have developed, uh, we've had to make sure that they have basic needs that are being met in order to be able to keep them in their housing circumstance. Um, but in spite of that, and the fact that we're in a pandemic, we're still building and we're still trying to build in a way that's safe and secure and allows the construction workers and those who are around uh, sites to be able to remain safe. And that doesn't mean we take our foot off of the gas and making sure that we continue to accelerate innovative ways to try and keep and get people housed uh, for the long term. I want to thank all of you for joining me today, and it was great and a pleasure to hear your insights on how we can better adapt to this changing future and to this really ongoing crisis. Um, as we end this podcast today, I'm excited to announce the release of a new housing toolkit for local governments offered by LISC-LA. Check out our website. Hopefully this will assist you and your partners in looking at responding to the current changes and challenges that we're facing in this current pandemic. We'd also like to encourage you to register for the next LISC Housing Development Training Institute sponsored by Union Bank, MUFG, uh, that will open in late June. The applications will open in late June. We hope to see many developers join us for more insight uh, so that they can uh, be able to hear from veterans in the field like Paul and Bill who are on the line here. And you might even have a chance to hear from Audrey or Rebecca who might stop by as well as part of the program. With that, we'd like to thank you for joining us today. This episode of Changemakers LA was made possible by our partner, MUFG Union Bank. If you'd like to learn more about how we provide capital support for innovative housing at LISC LA, please visit us online at www.lisc.org. That's www.lisc.org backslash Los Angeles. And follow us on Twitter at LISC underscore LA. You can find the rest of the recent series on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to hear more conversations about the people and places that shape Los Angeles.